Welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast with Dave Roberts. A unique skill all humans have is the ability to share information across generations. And the Teaching Journeys podcast does just that. It creates learning opportunities with each amazing guest with a goal that each episode makes a positive impact on people worldwide. Before we hear from today's guest, please share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast, Balloons and All. Um, it is my pleasure to have as my guest today, Kelly Doherty. Um, I'm going to read you a brief bio on Kelly. Kelly Doherty, a seasoned social worker with over two decades in the clinical field, is a fellow in thanatology, the study of death, dying, and bereavement. Anchored in Malta, New York, she owns Greater Life Grief Counseling and the Center for Informed Grief, LLC. Every day, Kelly finds purpose in her own grief by helping both individuals navigate the complexities of grief and professionals aiming to understand it better. Determined to revolutionize how grief support is provided, Kelly offers a wealth of tools and insight to those grappling with the death of loved ones and to the professionals dedicated to helping them. Kelly also co-owns Healing Strides LLC, which blends emotional and physical well-being, culminating in a unique seven-week program that pairs therapeutic grief groups with 5K race training for women. The program aims to foster and improve coping, emotional well-being, and physical fitness, leading to a richer sense of personal growth and meaning-making. She has contributed her expertise to the books Holistic Mental Health and Brave Kids, and the topic of our conversation today is going to be another book project that is forthcoming that Kelly was the, is the lead author on. And outside of her professional life, she's, Kelly cherishes time spent with her husband, Kevin Doherty, their dog, Boomer, and her seven nieces and nephews. She also enjoys do-it-yourself art projects, walking and running, and loves visits to the zoos, the beach, and Disney World. And with that, welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast, Kelly. I am very excited to have you as a guest today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. We were laughing prior to hitting the record button because it seems that Squadcast now has a new thing where just before you hit the record button, balloons go flying up in the background. So for those viewers who are going to watch this on YouTube and see the balloons, that wasn't me or that wasn't Kelly. That was just part of one of the, um, I guess, features now of the Squadcast studio. So Kelly. Please tell our listeners about the experiences or events that have shaped your life path. Sure. When I was about 12 years old, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And um, unfortunately, um, breast cancer took her. And so two and a half years later, right before my 15th birthday, she died. I was obviously struggling. My mom was the one that did everything for us. My dad worked. And came home, and that was about it. Was his role? It was the um, the financial piece of the, our home. But my mom was our caretaker, our nurturer, and my sisters are seven and a half and nine years older than I am. So I was pretty much, you know, like an only child at that point. I really struggled afterwards, and my dad 
fortunately knew that I needed some help. So we were in family counseling and then he got me to go to a hospice grief group where I met an amazing social worker. And most importantly, I met other grieving teens. And up until that point, I really felt very alone and isolated in my grief. I cried myself to sleep most nights. I really felt like I was the only one who had experienced the death of a parent um, because I didn't know anybody at that point. And fortunately, when I walked into that room, I didn't feel alone. And I met a group of, I think, five other girls. They had all had had their dads die, but it was still knowing that I wasn't alone. And so after I did some work with hospice in my own counseling and group, she asked me, the social worker asked me to start volunteering with the kids groups. And I did that. I did one of their, their children's grief camps. And that's when I knew that this is what I wanted to do with my life. So I pursued a master's in social work, worked at a couple of different hospices, and have done a couple of different things as a social worker throughout my career, working with trauma and working with, um, you know, mental health. And then I shifted to private practice so I could focus primarily on grief and loss because that really is truly my passion. It's what I love. I love to watch TV shows on it. I read books on it. I'm talking about it all the time. And it's really what I find my passion in. And like you said in my bio, it is really how I find meaning in my grief. I truly believe if my mom hadn't died, I wouldn't be where I'm at in my life. And that event truly shaped who I became, my career, my passion, everything about me in so many different ways. And, you know, I think you, you, you made a really, really great observation. Uh, for me, if I didn't experience the amount of grief and loss that I've had in my life, and particularly with the transition of, of my own daughter, Janine, over 20 years ago, there's no way I would have even begun to embrace the field of death, dying, and bereavement. There's no way I would have been involved with it. Mm-hmm. And it's typically, I think, for any professional I've talked to, and you, you might find this to be, be true as well, too, it's that professional choice that gets us in the field of thanatology. It's personal tragedy. Absolutely. When I worked at hospice in South Carolina, I remember talking one day to the nurses and social workers, and the majority of us had all experienced the death of a parent as a teenager. And yeah. I just don't, I feel like you either can work for hospice for two weeks or 20 years. Like you can either do it or you can't. And I truly believe it is probably because of your people's personal experiences with grief and loss, that they're able to be able to do that kind of job day in and day out and be there for grieving people and watching people, you know, as they transition. You know, I've said this on other podcasts, is that when an individual gifts us with the story of one of the most intimate moments of their lives, and end of life is a very intimate chapter in our lives. Um, when they gift us with that, they're telling us, I, I trust that you're going to hold sacred space for my story, and I trust you. And when individuals ask me, well, how can you keep doing this work? That's why I can keep doing this work. Yeah. Because of the trust that individuals have that I am going to hold their story sacred. Yeah. It's really powerful. I mean, to be able to have somebody come in into my office and sit with me and share these most intimate details about their loved one and and the death story and how it's impacted them on a day-to-day basis and how they're coping with it and to be able to give them hope and to give them tools and resources and most importantly, to know that they're not alone in this journey and this experience. 
any type of quality support, particularly from a community that understands the type of loss that that individual has gone through or is empathetic to the type of loss that that individual has gone through is go going to be a really, really crucial factor to help individuals move through grief. Yeah. The, it was the same for me. If it wasn't for quality support that I had had early in the journey um, from other parents who understood what it was like to experience a transition of a child, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I always tell, I volunteer at a grief camp up here, um, up in the Adirondacks of New York, and it's called Cindy's Comfort Camp and Glen Health Hospital facilitates. And I've been volunteering with them since about 2010. And what I always say to my group of volunteers, because I'm a healing circle leader, so like I lead these mini grief groups throughout the weekend. And what I always tell the volunteers is, if these children get nothing out of this weekend, but to know that they're not alone and that there's other children out there that are grieving like they are, then it was worth all of our time. And I truly believe that. And I agree. One thing I wanted to ask you about working with children, what have you found to be the difference from your observation in terms of working with children with grief and adults with grief? Well, every child is very different. <laughs> but I think some of the biggest differences is children grieve through their play. So they may not want to sit down and open up and tell you all these things. So you really have to be creative with kids. You have to be on the floor with them. You have to be able to be engaged with them. And they also, you have to find what works best for them. I have a couple of kiddos that I work with. And they're just not great individual therapy clients, but they thrive in my grief groups, like amazing, do great in the grief groups. And it's just, they're just not, the individual isn't beneficial for them. And in some ways, I believe, and I'm, other people may disagree with me, but I feel sometimes that the group counseling sessions are more effective than in the individual because of that shared grief piece, right? Like you talked about being able to walk into a room and know that you don't have to say that you're okay and that they know exactly what you're feeling or similar to what you're feeling. That is just, it's huge. And yeah. so I think the group piece is huge, important. But children, you know, regrieve at every developmental stage. So yep. I think it's really important to remember that just because they're doing okay now and maybe I, you know, discharge them now, I always tell them, you can come back because what happens when you hit puberty? Or you hit, you know, I had a girl graduating high school. I had known her for years. She came in and out. But high school hit, you know, it graduating was like, well, dad's not going to be there for this. Hmm. And she's like, I need to really process this again. And so she came back in. And that's what happens with children is they kind of regrieve at every development. And probably as she gets older, maybe when she gets to the point of having her own children, she may find that she's regrieving her dad again. And that's okay. Yeah, it's normal. Um, exactly. And that's one of the things I talk about in my death, dying, and bereavement class at Utica University is that children will re-express grief as they negotiate developmental stages because their meaning of grief is different with their developmental stage and the meaning that they attach to the loss is much different. And behaviorally, it may be expressed differently. Or now you have verbal skills and you know abstract thinking skills that are now coming into play so now they're going to be asking the greater questions. And, you know, I tell, you know, my students who are going to be working on children and families, tell the parents that this is normal. Um, and it also is further proof that 
grief is very circular. It's, it's not linear. There's no beginning point. There's no end point. Exactly. It, our, our sadness or yearnings for the physical presence of our loved one are always going to resurface depending on what event happens to be going on in our lives at that particular time. And it's important, I think, for individuals, families, and therapists to understand that. And I think a lot of times what I love to talk about is the fact that parents don't want to always put their kids in grief counseling or send them to a grief camp. Well, oh, they don't want to go, so we're not going to. And I had a mom this past spring say to them, say to her kid, I'm going to make that choice. You're going to grief camp. And they loved it. And one of them told me it was going to be a waste of time. And Saturday night after the bonfire, where he had just was in the talent show, thriving, was out at the bonfire, telling stories, was really doing amazing. I walked up to him, I go, so has this been a waste of time? And he's like, no, you were right. Very begrudging. Well, yeah, you were right. <laughs> exactly. But I think parents are afraid to like push their kids. And sometimes they have to, because you know, at the end of the day, this is really hard. And most children aren't going to open up to their parents about their grief. Because A, they're worried about that they're going to upset that parent. Mm -hmm. And then they don't want to have to see their parent upset and have to hold space for their parent. And, you know, children tend to do it, I think, a lot on their own. And, you know, like for me, I, I cried myself to sleep every night. I didn't talk to my dad about my grief, but that's how I was letting my grief out. I share a funny story about how my dad got me to go to that grief group. But he, he knew what I, he knew I needed to be there. And I went to an all-girls Catholic high school in Long Island. I was boy crazy. I was 15 years old, you know. And so my dad told me there'd be boys at the group. And so I went. Of course, there was no boys at the group. But he knew the way to get me to go to that group. And I would encourage the listeners that are listening to this, if you do have children and you're hesitant about putting your kids in grief counseling or a grief group, Sometimes you have to make that difficult decision and say, I'm the parent and you have to go to this. At least try it out for a couple of times. Because it really is important because otherwise you're coming to see me when you're 40 years old because you never dealt with your grief when you were 10. Well, and the other thing, you made a great point too about the fact that, you know, the younger children, especially, I said, I'm going to use as an example, death of a child. Um, the younger siblings are told, can be told that, or surviving siblings can be told, you got to be good for your parents. Don't do anything to upset them. They're grieving. Exactly. And, and then they begin to wonder, well, what about my grief? I lost a confidant. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I asked my students, how many of you have brothers and sisters? And the ones that raised their hands, I said, how many of you have told your brothers and sisters stuff you'd never tell your parents? And automatically they shake their head. The significance of the loss of that relationship to a sibling sometimes tends to get overlooked and it should not be. Yeah, they call it the forgotten mourners, right? Yep. You know, mm -hmm. because there's so much attention placed on the parent and not always on the surviving children and what they're going through. And, what, and you know, what we know is what one in 12 children will have a parent or a sibling die by the time they're 18 years old. And that number more than doubles by the time they've reached 25 years old. So there is a lot of grieving children out there for grieving a d the death of a parent. I mean, we're looking at 2020 stats is saying one in every five children who experienced the death of a parent was due to an overdose. Yeah. You know, that's that's pretty alarming. Um, and so that is also a different, you know, kind of grief that needs to be dealt with because 
a lot of parents won't want to tell their child how their parent died. And so in that, then kids are kids overhear things. They read things. I've had grief camps where people have kids have said, well, I read mom's text messages and I found out dad had cancer that way. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they oh, for me, I always overheard my mom on the phone with her sister at night after I'd go to bed. And that's how I knew what was happening with my mom's breast cancer and the progression. Not because she sat me down, because I overheard it. You have to also think about how can you be honest with children as well about the loss and what occurred and what's age appropriate. Took the words right out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely on point with that. Yep. So you are preaching to the choir. When it, I'm sure I am. When it comes to that, I don't so, know uh, But um, I, I tell my students, don't overlook the siblings. If you're doing family counseling, particularly around anything that's trauma-based, whether it's death, whether it's a loss due to a divorce, make space for the siblings. Get their Absolutely. input. Find out what's going on with them. Find out what helps show them what they can do in a to take care of themselves and impress the importance of self-care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So tell us about the grief experience. Tell us about your upcoming project. Um, I am excited that just in terms of, of what you, you know, what you've developed with this and I'm anxious to hear more. Yeah, absolutely. So A little over about a year and a half ago, I was invited to be part of a collaborative book called Holistic Mental Health. And Laura Mazzotta was the lead author, and she's down in Poughkeepsie, and she really wanted somebody um, grief-focused. And so I chose to, I've always wanted to write a grief book. That's been one of my, you know, my missions and my um, goals for my career. And, but it always feels overwhelming. So writing that chapter was, was fabulous, but I'm going to be honest. It was really hard. I wrote about, um, obviously the death of my mom and I used some, some papers I written when I was a freshman in college about my grief experience and reading that and being reminded of things. Um, it was a really challenging experience for me. It was, it brought up a lot of grief, even after 28 years. And a couple of my colleagues would find me out at my picnic table outside her office typing, crying, because it really did bring up a lot. But it was so amazing. And it was such a great experience that I decided that I wanted to take the lead on doing a grief book. And so the grief experience, Tools for Acceptance, Resilience, and Connection came out of that. And it's going live on February 6th. And it's 25 authors. And what my goal when I had to start recruiting these authors was that I really wanted a variety of different kinds of losses. I didn't want everybody to be similar to my story. I wanted a range of losses because I think it's really important. And my goal with this book is that whoever picks it up is going to be able to relate to at least one of the authors in it. So each of the authors shares their very vulnerable, personal intimate stories of loss, and then they share a tool that maybe helped them on their grief journey or that they've used with clients. And so it's amazing. I, when I finally got the book from the publisher back, I didn't get to read most of the chapters ahead of time. So I was like, oh, you know, a little nervous. And I sat on my couch crying, just how powerful the stories are, how unique and 
just vulnerable. I mean, even some of my closest friends are in this book, and I didn't know these stories. The woman that I do um, Healing Strides with, you mentioned in my running program, my bio, her story, I knew bits and pieces of it, mm-hmm. but to read, oh, oh, it was, it was really hard. You know, it was emotional for me to read, to think about what she went through um, with the death of her, of her boyfriend due to suicide as a teenager. I'm really proud of it. I'm really excited for it to get out there and for people to be able to relate to it. And as one of our reviewers said, it really combines the best of both. It is that story, but also gives you tools. And I am just, I'm really proud of it. And I'm really proud of the authors and grateful to all of them. And I think it's important that you had a variety of losses represented um, because and I had mentioned this because prior to recording our podcast, I recorded another podcast with April Hannah. I know April and you are good friends, colleagues, mm-hmm. and she's also one of the the featured individuals in the book. Yep. And, you know, we talked about issues that are related to cause of death. So even if you have, you know, then let's say, you know, you have child loss. Let's say we'll use that. I mean... One of the things that is consistent with child loss is that no parent is ever expected to bury a child. And that's one of the things in terms of dealing with the resumptive world is trying to reconcile that. Mm-hmm. But the other thing, depending on cause of death, there are unique issues that need to be addressed that make those losses, though the same yet, have some different features. Absolutely. It's where you, you can have stigmatized loss like suicide or, mm-hmm. or death due to addiction. You can have mm-hmm. sudden death. You could have long-term illness, with, like in, in your case with with yeah. your mom with breast cancer, with in the case of my daughter Janine with with velar uh, rhabdomyosarcoma, um, you know there are unique issues and differences that need to be addressed. And the tools that I think we craft are based not only on how can we integrate our grief, but how can we specifically address those unique issues related to cause of death. Exactly. And you know, in this book, isn't also just. Um not just, but grief also due to non-death losses because grief is the feelings associated with any loss. And so we have a male perspective on infertility and then we have a female perspective on infertility. We have someone who went through a divorce. So it is, it's a wide range of grief experiences. And that's really what I wanted. I wanted that. And just because somebody may not be able to relate to that person's type of loss doesn't mean that tool can't help them as well. Yeah, and the losses that are not due to death have they are just as intense a grief experience as those due to death. Yeah. And I think Elizabeth Walsh book Burke, I think, coined the term symbolic loss, which are losses that are not due to death and that represent the loss of dreams, the loss of futures, the loss of intact family systems, relationships. And she had several examples of Symbolic loss, divorce being one of them. Infertility is another one that is now, I think, just becoming, society is becoming more aware of. Um, and that, that's also a very significant uh, loss that sometimes does not get its due as, as much as it should. Absolutely. It's, you know, that, that loss of those expectations. Okay, we're going to get married and be able to get pregnant right away and start our family. And then that doesn't always happen. Yeah. Or the parent who has a child that has developmental challenges, that has autism, 
it mm -hmm. really wreaks havoc with the assumptive world about what they thought it was going to be like to be parents. Exactly. It's yep. like chronic sorrow. Yep, exactly. So, um, you know, loss is loss and tragedy is tragedy. Mm -hmm. Whether whether it's lost due to death or lost not due to death, it all need it all needs to be honored equally. Absolutely. There are 25 featured stories in your book. Yes. Um, without naming names, mm -hmm. can you give our audience an overview of the types of losses covered? I think you got into some of that already and the tools provided. And how did you determine which stories made the cut for your book? I'm sure there were some that didn't make the cut that you probably wanted to include. Yeah, you know that there is. I would love to see a volume two. I'm not sure it's going to be me taking it on, but <laughs> I would. There is certain, you know, things that I would like to see in another book. But I kind of sat down. It was last, not this Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving before we were driving out to my in-laws. And I sat in the car as my husband was driving and I wrote down all the types of losses that I really wanted to have in the book. And then I put out the word to, you know, out into social media land to see who would be interested in being part of this book. And I started interviewing people. And there were several people that were not interested in being part of it once they understood what it involved. And I also wanted people that were aligned with me. To be totally honest, I was not going to let the five stages in my book. <laughs> um, I wanted to make sure that the, these people had a similar um, grief-informed knowledge and grief-informed language that they would be willing to put in this book. I didn't want euphemisms. I didn't want outdated models discussed. I didn't. I wanted people to read what's current and grief-informed. That makes sense. I, I'm not an advocate of, of looking at a, a stage model approach to grief either. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't. It's just not accurate. It's not ever been proven. Terry Daniels did a great article on it last year, and I give it to everybody I can, every therapist, because it's, it isn't, you know, it can make you think you're doing your grief wrong. And I think a couple of years ago, I read a summation of, of uh, research on the applicability of stage theory to how individuals grieve. And every one of those research studies disproved that theory that exactly. we do not grieve in stages. Exactly. But it's still talked about. I had a client recently say, well, there's that sixth stage now. And I was like, oh, well, it's like yeah, finding meaning to me is not a stage. Mm -mm. Finding meaning is the outcome of the conscious decision that we make to re-engage in life following the worst tragedies of yep. our lives. Absolutely. Yep. It's an outcome. I could see where we align. I would not have had stage theory in any book that I, I put in as far as. I do have to tell you, I did send out a, um, a handout on what grief informed language was and what shouldn't the book be. And I'm, I'm, my name is on that cover. I didn't want things in there that I didn't agree with. Thankfully, I feel like the authors that I recruited for this were all in alignment with that. And I was really grateful for that. Well, and being one who embarked on a book project during the pandemic, I know how stressful that can be under 
any circumstances and to not have people aligned with you in a really collaborative effort book would make the process more stressful. Yep. So I could see where you would want people aligned with your philosophy who are going to be willing to look at more progressive approaches to grief and kind of do the out of the box, non-conventional ways of looking, looking at things. Well, I'm not even sure it's progressive. I just think it's accurate. Yep. I didn't know. Yeah. 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 And this is, this is an accurate representation of how we grieve. Exactly. And so what we have in the book is we have anticipatory grief. We have traumatic loss. We have loss due to suicide, due to overdose. We have um, divorce, infertility. I mean, I write about pet loss in mine because I already wrote about my mom in holistic mental health. So I write a little bit about my mom and my experience in the introduction. But I wrote about pet loss because it's a disenfranchised grief, which means it's mm-hmm. not readily accepted by society. And I had to almost, it made me sad when you read my bio because you mentioned Boomer. Well, since I sent you my bio, Boomer, Boomer transitions. My so, condolences, my con- sincere condolences. Thank you. So, you know, we went from having two pups a year ago or a little over a year ago to not having any now. And, and um, it's been quite a, quite a transition in our home, quite quiet, unfortunately. Yeah. And um, for me, I've been a lover of pets. I've been a cat person most of my life. Um, we transitioned our last cat. Zoe in 2022, and we haven't had an animal since. I know the the intense pain that goes along with losing a pet. Yeah, and it, you're right; it does become disenfranchised grief. There's a lot of people just well, it's just a dog. Well, no, it's not a dog. A dog represented more and taught me more about myself than a lot of humans could. And, and they're the best teachers of mindfulness. Mm-hmm, absolutely, and they're also very intuitive, and they can teach mm-hmm. us how to trust our intuition as well, too. As well as well as cats are very intuitive. Yeah. But anyway, back to your book. How is the content of how is the content of your book going to align with the services you provide a greater relief, greater life grief counseling? Well, I think, you know, I I've already used some of it, to be honest, and I'm probably not supposed to, but there is a tool in there from one of the authors that is a letter to give to people that are supporting you on your grief experience and your grief journey. And it talks about, even though I may have changed and this is what I'm going through and I'm hoping that um, you'll support me and what I need from you. And it's a really powerful letter. It's probably one of my favorite tools when I read it. And I've already given that to a couple of clients and they've had some really amazing experiences from that. And with their partners, with their family, and just a better understanding of what they're going through. Because I think when we're grieving, we don't always know how to express what we need, right? And people always say, oh, reach out if you need anything. Chances are, if you're grieving, you're not going to reach out. You don't have the mental or the emotional energy to even do it. To be able to give something like this to somebody, to say, this is what I need, and this is what I need from you. I think it's really beneficial. I honestly think I would like to incorporate it into the majority of my grief groups going forward, that tool, because I do think it's so important. And using all of the tools, to be honest, um, I think is going to be really beneficial for my, especially my groups. I really would love to see this being used. I want, I really want to do a book club 
with this book. Um, I'm not sure who's going to want to sign up to read 25 chapters on grief, but, um, you know, it's because it's it's heavy. It's it is. There is a lot of emotion in this book um, because we're talking about really vulnerable topics. And so many of these people in this book are therapists. And as therapists, we don't always get to share our stories. Right. And one of the girls that's writing is writing about the death of a client. And again, another topic that doesn't get a lot of attention out there. And the things she said in there was so powerful. She's like, you know, at the end of the day, we're human and we have feelings too. And we have these um, relationships with our clients and then they die and how that can impact us as well. And that's just kind of swept under the rug. I mean, you know, I've had clients die and you're expected to just go to the next session. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's not always easy to do. I had one a couple of years ago and it was, I was literally between sessions and I spoke to my client's son who gave me this information that she died suddenly. And I had to then sign on for my next session and how hard that was. Well, yeah. And you know, for me, I tell my students that it is okay to show emotion to the emotion of somebody else's story. Mm-hmm. As long as you're not using that person for your own therapy, it is okay. If that person, if your client is crying and you shed a tear with them, that, that to me mm-hmm. is the greatest show of empathy. That just shows that, boy, I, I understand your pain. I can feel your pain mm-hmm. and I can, I can reflect that pain and sit with that pain with you. That, that to me is very powerful. And, um, you know, I think there's room for that as long as it does not compromise the professional, professional relationship, but it's, it's all good. It's all good. I mean, besides who could be stone faced listening to these, these really, really powerful stories of loss, but also powerful stories of individuals who've transcended that. How could you be stone faced? You can't. I couldn't. No, no, you can't. Couple last questions. Give our listeners one or two takeaways from your experiences that can help them effectively navigate life challenges. I think mindfulness is key. Taking things a minute at a time, because sometimes a day at a time even feels too much. And so taking it a minute at a time, being in the present moment, using your tools, your grounding things to stay present. Because I think so many times we get caught. A lot of my clients struggle with how the person died. Even if they didn't witness it, they've created this image in their mind. And one of my biggest goals, I think, as a therapist is to help a client remember the person's life and not the death. Exactly. And so the more that we can be mindful of that, to sit with our emotions when we need to, to lean into them, but also to take care of ourselves and also to practice self-compassion. We are so hard on ourselves. We beat ourselves up. We get caught up in those coulda, woulda, shouldas. And I shouldn't have done this. I should have been able to save them. I should have been there. And it, it's just, it doesn't help. It actually is, in my opinion, but a bit of an avoidance to the sadness mm-hmm. of the loss because it's easier to beat ourselves up than it is necessarily to sometimes sit with that sadness. So practicing that self-compassion, even if it comes down to just putting your hands on your heart, like Kristen Neff talks about, 
this is a moment of suffering. I'm doing the best that I can. You know, just giving yourself a little bit of that space and that time and that forgiveness and that kindness. And, you know, self-compassion comes down to mindfulness, common humanity, and self-kindness. So I think that they really do go hand in hand. And I would agree. Um, and we don't do enough of that, particularly towards ourselves. Hmm? We don't. And um, we need to show ourselves grace because the authors in your book, you, me, and anybody that we've run into has experienced loss, has experienced some deep-seated tragedies that permanently alter the landscape of our world. And so we need to be able to, to demonstrate grace to them. Let them know that, hey, you're doing the, you're doing the best you can, given the hand of cards that were dealt with you. So, so, so celebrate that part and nurture that part and treat yourself with more self-love than you may even believe you deserve. Exactly. But you deserve it. And plus, you don't have to earn it because we were all born in this world with love anyway. Hmm? So why do we have to earn it or why do we have to question whether or not we're lovable? We are. Life circumstances. Self-compassion no, just comes down to what would you say to a best friend and give yourself that same advice? Exactly. Simple as that. Exactly. We can be so kind to everybody else. We don't have to have these high standards of ourselves. We can be kind to ourselves and realize that we can make mistakes and that's okay. Mistakes are always about information. Mm -hmm. They inform us. So they should not... They shouldn't be run away from. Yeah. Last question. People want to find you. They want to contact you. They want to contract for your services. They want to find out more about how to purchase the book, which is coming out I, February 6th. Am I correct? correct? Correct. All right. And I know we talked about that in the beginning of the show, but I wanted to make sure we got it at the end too. Tell everybody how we can get in touch with you. Yes. So... I am a licensed clinical social worker in the state of New York, South Carolina, and Florida. So I am able to provide in person in my Malta um, location or telehealth, so, but they have to be in New York, Florida, or South Carolina. My, griefs, my grief groups are obviously, um, I offer hybrid approach. So you can join them virtually or in person, and which is great because especially we live in the Northeast, we deal with a lot of snow. So um, if you can't make it to a group, you can join virtually via Zoom. So um, that's called Greater Life Grief Counseling, which is um, my website, all of that information, glgrief.com. And then a newer project of mine is Center for Informed Grief, where my goal really is to provide training and education to therapists and to school personnel to help them become more grief-informed. Because so many therapists are afraid to talk about grief and they're not comfortable with it. I love that you teach a class. It makes me so happy. But the majority of therapists do not have any training in grief and loss. Actually, about over 60% of them have not had any education in undergraduate or graduate schooling in grief and loss. I think it's starting to change. But um, I was one of those. I had to go to the religion department and the nursing department to get a grief and loss course when I was in college. So my goal really is to be able to provide some really specialized trainings that are grief informed, that go beyond, you know, what maybe they have been taught, that inaccurate um, stage model, and give them actual tools and techniques 
Um, so I've done some trainings in local school districts around here in upstate New York. I really would love to be able to do more of that. I will be doing some more trainings for um, some CE providers throughout the state to be able to offer continuing education credits for therapists. So I'm really looking forward to that. So that's Center for Informed Grief. And I also have some free resources on there. There is a self-care while grieving course that is free and goes along with the book. And that's available right now and has a workbook to go along with it. And we're also going to be doing a grief experience conference, which will be coming up in March, which will be virtual and is going to have some panel presentations along with some bonus sessions of individuals sharing different tools and resources. So checking out Center for Informed Grief or the Grief Experience Facebook page or Instagram page is a great way to find out about that conference. Sounds like you got a lot going on in 2024. Yep, I would say so. Well, hopefully you get in some time for a couple of naps and you get in some time for some self-care time for yourself and with Kevin and with, you know, with your nieces and nephews. And, yep. uh, and we're getting you know, a new pup. You're getting a new pup to wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. Yep. We're, we're on a list. And so we're looking at springtime to welcome a new Boston Terrier into our lives. So that will keep us, I'm sure, extremely busy. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure we'll see all kinds of Facebook posts with the new pup and, yes. um, you know, all of the joys of toilet training and, you know, and all that and, and chewing stuff. And, yep, I've you never know, had a puppy, so it'll be interesting. <laughs> it'll be, yeah, I'm sure it'll be fun. I'm sure yep. it'll be loads of fun, but. Kelly, it was so great to have you on the Teaching Journeys podcast today. I hope we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great, a great time. You're welcome. And with that, that is a wrap on another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts, wishing you peace. Thank you for listening to this episode. And please remember to share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. And don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both.